Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Athena Dixon, a co-host of the New Books and Poetry podcast via the New Books Network. Today, we are speaking with Catherine Ross about her new collection, Black Was Not a Label. Catherine Ross is a Southern California-based writer and editor. Her works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have previously appeared in Sybil Literary Journal, Mariah Literary Magazine, Linden Avenue, and Crack the Spine. She is a columnist at Pasadena Now, where she writes about race and culture, and a poetry and essay reviewer for Whale Road Review and The Rumpus, respectively. She completed her MA in English and Creative Writing at Azusa Pacific University and loves cats, baths, and rosé slushies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I kind of one of my favorite parts to start a conversation with writers is how they kind of came to the page. So can you give us a little bit of a brief history on your path, how you came to writing, um, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry? Yeah, I started writing when I was pretty young. Um, my sister and I were small. I was always like kind of making up games and stories for us to kind of follow along to while we were playing. So I would say things really started there. Um, to make it more official, though, I would say I was always a very avid reader. So I was really into Harry Potter when I was a child. I still am, I should say. And that kind of sparked my need or my want to write. And then um, a series of unfortunate events also really whet my appetite for writing. I just really loved the way the stories were crafted. I loved how they used very big words for you know me as a child at the time and explained them and just kind of like built up my vocabulary naturally. So I would say that's where my desire to write started. I didn't really take it seriously, though, as a vocation until high school. Um, before high school, I was pretty set on being a marine biologist, but I cannot swim. And I'm like, okay, at best at science. So it was pretty clear that's probably not the best career path for me. Um, but my freshman and sophomore years of high school, I was doing really well in my English classes. I was in honors English. Um, and I started writing stories more seriously. And that's when I decided that you know, when I went off to college, I wanted to uh, major in creative writing and or English. And that's what happened. So I guess I've just kind of always been a storyteller. And just as I was growing older, it became more clear to me that this was something I wanted to do like full time. Now, did you find that your first genre was the poetry or the fiction? And how did you kind of come to um, each one of those? Was there a particular catalyst or a teacher who encouraged you to find either one of those genres? Not really. I think I started out with poetry more. And it's funny because now I say that poetry is not really my strongest writing suit. So I started with poetry. I had um, this little account online when I was a kid where I would write poems and I would write poems in my notebooks. And I think it was when I was reading Harry Potter that I started trying to write short stories of my own. I think I wrote my first short story in seventh or eighth grade, like one that I'm actually like proud of and would share with people. 
Um, and I didn't really have any teachers who were encouraging of like my creative writing so much. They just noticed that I had a proclivity towards English and grammar. And so they kind of pushed me in that direction. Um, I think in high school, I want to say I started to write short stories for like assignments and essays and my, my teachers were always like, Oh, this is really good. Or this is really interesting. And I, from there, I went on to journalism, which again, is not really my strongest writing suit, but something I tried. Um, so I kind of found my way by myself as far as genre, but I always kind of had the backing of my teachers just telling me that like, Oh, you have like a talent for English and writing. So you should kind of explore that more, but they kind of like left it up to me for like what I would explore exactly. So in your work in general, outside of the collection, um, for things that you've written in the past, how do you kind of find your footing in your work? Do you have certain things that anchor you into your writing or certain things that kind of bring you to the page? Yeah, I feel like I'm very influenced by my faith. Um, and I guess just by life itself. I know that's like very broad, very generic, but um, I kind of just take things that I encounter every day, things that influence me every day. So that would be my faith. Like, you know, I've had many short stories start off with like a prayer I've been thinking of or a Bible verse I've read or a lyric in a song. Other short stories have been born from like things I've seen on TV, like a commercial, um, a character I really like, a line in a book. So I would say like, I think my um, initial inspiration came from Ray Bradbury. Like he was the first serious, serious writer that I was like really into. Um, I would read all of his work. I, I own a ton of his books. I own a couple pieces of his house. Amazingly, um, his LA house that was torn down a couple years ago. And every time I would read him, I just felt like I really wanted to write. Like I felt incredibly inspired. So my first shots at writing were a lot of um, sci-fi kind of after Ray Bradbury, but the way he writes is very humanistic where it's like not so much about the science fiction setting. It's about the people. He just like puts them in these like fantastical spaces, but it's still like these very human stories. So I think that's why my writing style is my, maybe not my style, but like my um, themes are more generic where they're more just about like people and relationships and thoughts and feelings, um, which can really just come from anywhere, from anyone, any conversation you're having. Um, I think I tried to be more of a genre writer when I was younger, like really trying to stick into fantasy or stick into like robots and alien sci-fi, but it just didn't really gel with me. Um, I think at the end of the day, I'm always just more interested in the people and what they're feeling in my stories. So sometimes I'll put them in like very weird settings. Other times, um, like one of my short stories I had published a couple years ago, which is a girl and her boyfriend in a coffee shop. And then they, um, the girl decides to break up at the end of the date and she doesn't tell the guy. And that was just something I was kind of like musing on myself around that time of life. And it's just very grounded in real life. It's not like fantastical, but that's one of the stories that people have told me like affect them the most. So yeah, I guess I just like everyday life has been like a really big influence for me. So I kind of want to transition into your collection, Black Was Not a Label. 
So it kind of is a hybrid between poetry and prose. Um, I think a lot more prose than poetry. Um, But how did you determine the balance between those two? Well, when I set out to write this, um, the first piece that I wrote was Defiance. And I wrote that in the spring of 2014. Um, The poems that are in here, one of the poems I wrote, I believe it is um, Brown People on page 52. That was the first piece that I wrote at all. Um, I wrote that in 2013, um, just after reading The Metamorphosis by Ovid, just kind of like a one-off thing. And then when I wrote Defiance in the spring of 2014, that was kind of like the next stepping stone, but they weren't connected yet. So it wasn't until I finished or I was finishing grad school and I was thinking about my thesis project and what I wanted to do for my capstone. And I went back and read Defiance and then I started responding to it. So then I was looking back at some of my old writing and finding other things that had the same themes. And that's when um, Brown People, the poem came up. And so aside from Defiance and Brown People, everything else was pretty much new that I wrote for that assignment. Um, I think In the World Where I Do Not Exist was written before I set out on the project, but majority of the essays and poems in here were just kind of like linking up with the first two, which would be Defiance and Brown People. I'm glad that you brought up Defiance because um, when I was reading the collection, I thought that there was a tone that you set in that first piece, um, that there was this probing. And several times I kind of stopped to remark that I thought that you were in some ways, subtly um, attacking or tackling the violence, especially like emotional and social violence against Black people and Brown people. Um, And especially in that classroom scene um, where it's clear that you're being made the scapegoat of the conversation about the souls of Black folks. So when you were kind of approaching writing that piece in particular, um, how did you kind of approach tackling this violence in a way that it manifests in ways that people might not expect? Yeah, the funny thing is, so that story or that that happened when I was a freshman in college. That was my very first year. It was spring semester. So that would have been 2012. And I didn't end up writing about it until 2014. Um, it took me a really long time to process that whole experience. Um, but I remember vividly the day it happened. And I remember vividly how I felt afterwards. I remember I was like almost crying and I couldn't understand why exactly. And so it took me a really long time to kind of just process what I was feeling, why it affected me so much, and then like what I wanted to do about it. Um, because I guess prior to that incident, I would take those kind of moments like, oh, like I would let them roll off my back and I would try to not internalize them. But that one was like kind of inescapable. And so it made me look at the other things and the other experiences I've had and say, like, you can't just write these off. Like, these are happening because you are Black and you can't ignore that anymore. So it took me a really long time to come to that. And then it took me an even longer time to kind of, like, accept that's what had happened. So by the time I wrote Defiance, I was at, um, that's by the time I was at APU. So that incident happened at a different university, not APU. And um, by the time I wrote Defiance, I was in my junior year at APU and I was taking a nonfiction class. And so we were working on braided essays and 
I'm not really sure what pushed me to write about that, but I guess it was just like time to write about it. Um, and the time since that had happened, I would um, cut off my relaxed hair. So I was wearing my hair natural at that point. I, and I still am. Um, I was in a new school. I was around new people. I was having new experiences. And so I think I was like in a better space where I was able to look back and like confront that experience and kind of confront my, I don't want to say my new identity, but I think I was like coming into myself more in a way that I wasn't able to when I was like a young teenager or in the, even my late teens. And in that same piece, um, there's this scene um, at the lunch table um, where you're having to explain to this particular man or boy that you don't want to be the black friend, that there's no reason you can't just be his friend. Um, and it was interesting dynamic to see you being the wronged party but still having to keep like a soft face and not to seem aggressive or you're going to make the stereotypes to be true. So what type of consideration did you give to dealing with the idea of having to tuck and hide your true feelings in order to maintain social standing? That was something I learned really early on. Um, I would say maybe elementary school. And it was always a big shock when it would happen. Like if I got upset about something, they would say it was because I was black. I remember being in the cafeteria one day and I think I had gotten hot lunch that day and I normally brought my lunch from home and everyone was like remarking on how on the day they were serving chicken, like, of course I would get hot lunch, but it was just kind of like a coincidence. And so I was getting a lot of these like stereotypes put on me as a kid. And I was always so baffled by them because I just didn't know where they were coming from. And I guess because I didn't see myself as living out those stereotypes like obviously people don't live out the stereotypes because that's what makes them stereotypes but I was always very surprised when they were like put on me in the way that they were so I learned from a pretty young age that people were attributing these behaviors and thought processes to me that like were very far from what I was feeling so by the time I was in high school it was kind of like old hat at it where I was like if I act this way they're going to see it as this, or if I say that they're going to take it this way. So I, um, I guess I would say maybe it was like a very primitive form of code switching at that point in my life. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but I was like, I need to stifle and be quiet and not react this way because they're going to see it as this. And I don't want that experience again. So it was more out of, um, I think in a way it was like out of self-protection because like being having these assumptions put on me was so uncomfortable and it was so hard to explain or like try to talk against them and say like that's not who I am that's not how I'm feeling and they just would never listen so I would just try to avoid it from happening at all by immediately being like calm and soft and you know gracious and not being angry when you know some awful things were said to me or done to me and in that story, like my friend, he really was just clueless. Like he, he and I are still friends today and he just didn't know. But um, I think it was just that moment with him where all of that came flooding back for me. And so I remembered, okay, like I really have to always be on guard because no matter how close I am with someone, no matter, you know, how much they see me every day, they still have this idea of me first. It's always going to come out first. You also not only deal within the book 
kind of like these outward issues and, and outward kind of standing up for yourselves. Um, but you also have internal changes as well. And there are these beautiful passages that you're writing about your journey from relaxed hair to natural hair and the scene of you actually cutting that hair off. So do you feel in some ways this collection is not only like a self-transformation for yourself, but also like a reconnecting with the history from which you had been disconnected, um, whether or not you realize that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's weird because, you know, my hair was never straightened as an attempt to be like more Eurocentric or to like more white, I guess, just to put it bluntly. Like my, my mom literally just had my mom relax and I was, I don't know, not too young, maybe fourth or fifth grade because I have really thick hair and a really tender scalp. And she was like at her wits end trying to deal with my hair. And so it was just something she did just to make it easier on herself and easier on me. And so I don't like resent that decision. I don't resent having my hair that way for as long as I did, but it did kind of disconnect me from, I guess my roots in a, in a way because because I had the straightened hair and we took really good care of it. So like, you know, I, my roots were always touched up and it was always straightened and clean and everything. Like we, you know, took really good care of it at all times. So it wouldn't break and all those things. So people assumed that was just my hair, like kids did. And so then I started to think that was just my hair. And in a way, like it, it is my hair because it was my, the hair going out of my head. It was just chemically straightened, but I was kind of, I was fuzzy about my natural hair and like my real hair. So it was my real hair, but it wasn't my natural hair, obviously. So when I finally got to a point where I wanted to cut it, it was kind of like reclaiming that natural part of me that I hadn't been in touch with for a long time. That kind of brings me to your postscript. So in that postscript, you're writing this idea of warring souls and that there are two, a black woman and a human soul. And you kind of touched on that when you were talking about what you write and how you write in in relation to Ray Bradbury and how you're writing human stories. And that's why they may be general. So do you find that both that human soul and that black woman are working in concert or they impose in any way? And if there is any kind of conflict, how do you um, reconcile that when they both exist inside you? I would say that, yeah, it is definitely me kind of reconnecting with myself that I was a little, I don't want to say cut off from, but I guess distant to. Um, When I was younger, I had relaxer in my hair, um, probably around fourth or fifth grade. And that was done just mainly because my hair is really thick and I'm very tender headed. And so it was just like a way for my mom to kind of have something easier on herself and easier on me. Um, But I had a hard time being able to understand the difference between my natural hair and my real hair. Because like it was my real hair, we took really good care of it. We always made sure like the roots were touched up and it was healthy and washed and everything. But so far as my natural hair, um, I wasn't wearing the natural curls I was born with. So it was always straight. So by the time I was in college and I was wanting to 
have my own hair without straightening it or doing all the extra salon business and everything. I did just cut it off. And so then I was connected back to this space, I guess, of my ancestry, of my roots, of so just being more myself. And what was so freeing about it is when my hair was long and straightened, um, a lot of people would ask me questions. Some people would actually check my roots without me noticing. That would happen like in the locker room when I was a kid. Um, it was just like a source of contention in a lot of ways. And then when I cut it off, it's just like been compliments and like, oh, your hair is so beautiful. Or like, I love your hair texture and style and everything. And it's almost like kind of backing into myself makes it more acceptable. And that does annoy me on some levels because what it, however it looked, it was still my hair. But I think maybe it could be something in me. It could be like a more natural understanding of myself or maybe just like a way I'm carrying myself differently now that my hair is natural. Um, but it definitely has been a journey and it definitely has been, yeah, I guess a, a reconnection. And I don't like resent my mom at all for doing that. Like I know it was a mess because my hair is so thick and there was so much of it. And I'm so tender headed that it was just easiest to kind of relax it and make things easier on both of us. But um, by the time I cut it, it was just like a, I was just like in a different headspace and a different space emotionally. And yeah, I do feel more connected, especially when I see older pictures from like African tribes or women kind of have hair like mine or there. They have these styles that are really cool and they're all natural. It does feel like a connection that I didn't have before. So. In the collection, just as you're honoring your own story, you also take great care to honor those who've come before you. Um, so in the opening piece, you write, I'm suddenly so tired, weighed down by the exhaustion held in the bones and flesh and heart of every ancestor, every brown skinned body I ever was or will be connected to. It swoops upon me like a bird of prey. The words continue to unravel slowly in my mind. I see them drifting away letter by letter out into the eddying sea until they dissolve into nothing. So when you were crafting the story, even though it's very personal, um, what kind of consideration did you give to experiences that you thought were important to include in the work itself? I think what that came from was that even though it is a memoir, even though it is me telling my story, it is about bigger things than just myself. It is about my race and my heritage and my ethnicity, and that is a whole history. And so when I'm writing about myself, I can never really be writing about just myself because I'm influenced by hundreds of years of history and people and the different lives they led. And there's no way I can talk about myself without also, you know, talking about them. So I wanted to give special care to my ancestors, um, no matter how far removed, because on the one hand, I kept putting myself in that space and thinking, like, what would I have done if I lived there? What would I have done if I was, you know, going to the door of no return, if I was getting on the boats? How would I have felt and would I have survived? 
Um, and personally, I don't think I would have. And so I see it's such a huge blessing that I am here now to write about this. So I think when I'm writing about myself and writing about my race, there's really no way around writing about the others. It's just like kind of an all or nothing deal. And it's interesting that we're kind of we're talking about ancestors because we're obviously in the middle of this global pandemic. Um, but it's very obvious that there are still very deadly situations where there's still the social police policing of black and brown bodies in addition to what we already expect from like political, criminal and economic um, policing that existed prior to this virus. So kind of looking back on it now, do you find that in a way that this book itself um, is a revolutionary act, um, one that forces people to not only see you as an individual, but also to see everything that came from before you? Just the last week, with everything we've been hearing about Ahmaud Arbery, I've had some people reach out to me. Um, I wrote a column for Pasadena Now that came out on Thursday. And just like my take on his murder and everything else that's going around and going on. And while the person was outraged and hurt, they wanted to make it like a people problem rather than a systemic problem in America. And I think with that in mind, this book kind of unflinchingly tells people like, you can't ignore that this was something that the country was built on. You can't ignore that my ancestors' bodies are the foundation of America. You can say it's a people problem. That's not untrue, but it's not that simple. Um, and I had someone ask me once, you know, what is the bravest thing you've ever done? And this was before my book was even out. But I think it was just, I told them like, writing this book at all was very brave of me in my opinion because i it is incredibly personal it's incredibly vulnerable and it's controversial i i was afraid that some people were going to read it and be really upset or feel like really angered by my take on things but i wanted to be really careful that my truth was lining up with the objective truth. Because I think anyone can just say what their truth is and just go with it. But I'm very interested in the objective truth. And so when I'm telling my story, I don't want to embellish. I don't want to exaggerate. I want to tell it as it is. And the sad thing about our history is that it's, it's as awful as it sounds. It's as violent as it sounds. And some people don't want to sit with that. And so I think in telling people, this is not like a fictionalization. This is the real stuff. This is my real life. They can't really turn away from how awful the truth is. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you wrote the book in the manner that you wrote it. Um, one of the things I think sometimes, especially as writers of color, when we're writing memoir and we're writing stories and poetry that are based in our own kind of experiences, is that we're expected to trade on trauma 
in a way that makes it the entire story and not just a portion of the story. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the idea and the way that you took the time to craft the, the work in a way that was like, this is my story. However, these things are a portion of it. Um, and that you didn't feel, from what I read, the need to make those um, expectations and those societal pressures trump everything else you you wrote. So when you were crafting this, how did you kind of find a balance between wanting to include those ancestral stories and wanting to include your experiences with race and kind of like the the pitfalls of it without making it um, a story that was no longer about you? Well, the way I started writing this was I went back and read Defiance and I was just responding to it. So like point by point, piece by piece, section by section, I was saying, where do I disagree with myself now? And then I would kind of use that as a prompt because I was looking at how I carried myself when I was like 16, 17. And I know I was doing it out of like a coping mechanism, a coping space, but I was like, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And that was wrong. That wasn't honoring my feelings. That wasn't honoring how I should be treated. And so I went back and read it and I was like, I disagree with myself in a lot of ways. And so in responding to defiance, all of those things came out. It came out where I had to talk about my history, my ancestors, my heritage, and then the more personal stories where I had erased myself, erased my feelings in an attempt to be more compliant and easier to get along with. And so it was just kind of coming back to that and telling myself, like, that's not okay. You need to revisit this and you need to tell the whole story. So in the editor's note of your book, um, Michael Dean Clark writes um, that we must look at what we have been too afraid to examine. We must slow down and consider the wounds opened and reopened for centuries that create the world where these words were framed and formed. We must listen with no other intent but to grieve and allow that sadness to reshape us. So as we're kind of winding down, what do you want readers to leave with at the conclusion of the book? Is there some kind of feeling or thought process or questions that you want them to have when they're leaving your book? Yeah, when the reader finishes my book, what I want them to leave with is a sense of empathy. And I think that is so important for all of us. And I don't want anyone to take it as like, you know, white people need to leave with empathy. We all need to leave with empathy because all of us have said something dumb or hurtful to another person of color out of ignorance. And so in telling my story, I wanted to show people how easy it is to make those microaggressions, how easy it is to say something racist, even if you don't even realize that's what you said. Um, I don't want people to have the idea that unintentional racism is somehow better than intentional racism. The only difference is that there's space for teaching. If someone unintentionally does that, they're likely more open to being told why they were wrong and how to fix it. Um, But I think if we operate from a place of empathy to begin with, we can avoid those moments more and more. So when someone reads this book, when they close the last page, I just want them to be able to kind of sit 
in my experience and then think about how might I have done this to someone else? How might someone have done this to me? And how do I move forward to help these things not happen anymore? So are there any new projects that you're undertaking or projects that you want our listeners to know about? I know that you write your column for Pasadena now. Um, Is there anything else you want us to know? I am working on my next book. It's incredibly early, though. I haven't actually written anything down, but I'm doing a ton of pre-reading. So I'm excited to have a manuscript in the not too far future. And this one is going to be more of my roots of short stories and sci-fi speculative fiction, but also keeping in with the important themes we need to talk about of like race and relationships and how we relate to one another. So I kind of want to like take a more intentional stab at like my own collection of short stories inspired by Ray Bradbury and his human works. So that's what I'm working on. Again, it's like super early, but I'm excited about it. So where can um, our listeners read your um, Pasadena Now column and when does it um, publish? So my column publishes once a month, usually the second week of the month or middle of the month. Um, You can find it on Pasadena Now's website, or you can also find it on my website under columns. And my website is speaktherightlanguage.com. And write is with W-R-I-T, so speaktherightlanguage.com. So I have all my publications there. I have my column there. I have events listed there. And just like about me, if you want to learn more, I have all the things there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I greatly appreciate you talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. 